I don't want to dismiss any of the people as being unthoughtful or unkind or unloving because they are quiet. But also, access to those emotions might also be more difficult in a culture that doesn't encourage that among family members and among council. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is novelist Shelley Reed, author of Go as a River. It's a novel set in the 1940s in Iola, Colorado, on the Nash family's peach farm. Now, though the setting is real, you won't find Iola on a current map. And how that's come about is just one of the many kinds of changes this novel explores. And I can't wait to get into it. Shelley Reed, welcome to Kobo. Hey, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. We learn in the prologue that the town of Iola, where the novel is set, now sits, as you say, silent, forgotten, decomposing at the bottom of a lake that was once a river. So in a way, we know one major thing that has to happen to the characters living there is that they can't keep on living there. Why did you want readers to know this about the town and about the setting of the book right up front? Right up front. Yeah, you're right. That information comes in the prologue. So even before the two main characters meet on the first lines of the first chapter, the prologue establishes um, the setting of the novel, which is so crucial to the novel itself that you know the setting, the wild landscapes are almost characters in themselves throughout the book. And so I thought it was important to establish from the very first pages that um, Iola was a thriving ranch town. My main character, Victoria Nash, um, it's a the whole novel is a first-person narration through Victoria's point of view. We get into her voice and into her head, and we get some visual images about the town of Viola, Colorado, right away in the book. And then we learn that it's been drowned, and it's lying beneath um, the waters of Blue Mesa Reservoir, which is the largest reservoir in Colorado. That setting and establishing that setting immediately was really important for me to set the tone for the book that some of the thematic concerns around place and displacement, home and family, and where we turn when those things are lost. And um, I think it's helpful to the reader to just sense that about the book right away. So just to fill that out a little bit, tell us about our protagonist, Victoria Natch. Oh, Victoria, I, I have to tell you just from the beginning, I... If I talk about Victoria with so much affection in my voice, it's because I love Victoria Nash. She's a character I've lived with for a long time, and I've come to know really deeply. Um, one that I love so much and that I just felt so deeply compelled to try to tell her story as accurately and as well as possible. So Victoria Nash is a young, as the novel opens, Victoria Nash is a young woman growing up along the banks of the wild Gunnison River in the Gunnison Valley on the western slope of the Colorado Rockies. She's 17 years old when the novel opens, and she's a relatively naive um, young woman who her whole life is very much defined by her circumstances, by loss in her life, by her role as caretaker of the family farm. She is growing up the only woman, the only girl in a house full of men, uh, rather ragged men who have been through a lot themselves and who really don't take the time on any level to to know Victoria other than basically a, a house servant. And so that's all that Victoria really knows about herself as well. Um, in the first pages of the, uh, the, the, the first chapter, she meets, meets a young man named Wilson Moon. And that rather serendipitous sort of un, unanticipated meeting on the streets of Viola and the, um, the dirt streets of Viola. It's a very humble place. Um, alters the course of both of their lives. And then the rest of the novel follows Victoria through her journey. Many difficult circumstances, many difficult decisions. As she learns who she is and she learns about her capabilities, her strength and resilience, we follow her all the way into the early 1970s, um, 
going along with Victoria on um, a series of of complications that really reveal to her 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 depth and and her what an extraordinary woman she really is. The character Will Noon is is one that introduces some complexity for you as a as a writer. You know, we learn that he's indigenous. We don't know a lot more about him uh, than that, and and he doesn't occupy a, a you know in terms of words on the page, he doesn't occupy a huge amount of the book, although his presence just echoes and reverberates through the entire work. So can you tell me about crafting him as a character? Yes, yes. You know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to get to talk about Wilson Moon and the crafting of that character. And thank you so much for feeling how I try to keep him um, very present all the way through the novel. I'll try not to give away any spoilers uh, to the overall book uh, for people who haven't read it. Always yet. a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Always a challenge. It really is a challenge, but I do understand how how important that is for a reader. So, what I'll say about Wilson Moon is that I also love him deeply. He's a gentle and beautiful character um, who I really, really loved spending time with as I got to know him in my own imagination. Um, Will becomes a very important part of this book, not only as a catalyst to Victoria, as a heart connection for Victoria, but also, you know, as I was exploring the setting of Iola, Colorado, and a, and a town that literally was erased from the map in order to flood that valley and create the reservoir, and the novel became more and more about place and displacement, I certainly could not tell a story about displacement in the American West without including on whatever level I am able to include, um, including the indigenous experience. So well before the predominantly white ranchers and farmers of the Iola area and that portion of the Gunnison Valley were displaced by the rising floodwaters, um, well before that, the indigenous population of the Gunnison Valley, who were the Ute people, were violently and forcibly displaced. And the legacy of that, the, the layers of displacement really intrigued me of um, you know what is the story there, and also what is Kate, what is possible for each one of these characters, both children of displacement, both having to navigate um, a, a new sense of identity, a new sense of homeland in the world. But what was possible for Victoria was, in my mind, because of the layers of racism, the historical prejudice against a young man like Wilson Moon, um, what was available to Victoria to move forward with simply not available to to Wilson Moon. And so he becomes a character of ancestral and generational displacement. He's a drifter. We meet him first when he meets Victoria. We find out he's a drifter who's trying to convince himself that one place is just like another. But we can tell in his soul, and certainly from Victoria's perspective, that that isn't necessarily true as much as it is necessary in order for him to try to make a life for himself after generations and generations and generations of his people being um, being not allowed in their own homeland. So I think that Wilson Moon is a very interesting character as a counterpart of the idea of displacement to Victoria. And then also he's just a, a big-hearted, lovely human being who Victoria is able to connect with human heart to human heart. Um, both of them, when they come together, they're able to transcend those inherited cultural biases and actually just be able to see one another as two human beings. And I very much value that in these two young people. And so, you know, the way that the story plays out for them um, is carrying all of the weight of all of that history. One of the things that's so remarkable, right, from the beginning of their relationship is this this sense of openness and victoria growing up with the men around her on a farm seems to live in a very in a closed world people don't talk very much people you know emotions do not get shared uh literally the amount of information moved between one person and another is incredibly small and then with Will she does meet someone who has both, uh, you know, an an open heart 
and an open mind. Were were you trying to look at some of those ideas of you know open minds and closed minds at that at that period of time in history in the American West? Yeah, you know, a lot of Victoria's story is embedded in what was possible for a young woman in that setting at that era. And um, all I can guess from both my research and also knowing my my grandmothers and my great grandmothers well was the answer is, you know, not a lot. <laughs> not a lot was was possible for her in terms of self-expression, self-actualization, self-awareness, as you mentioned, very little conversation actually. The ranchers and the farmers that she lives among are good hearted people for the most part. They are hardworking people, but they and they are they are humble and they are determined, but they are relatively stoic and uh define their lives by how hard they work every day. And you know, I really, really admire that. But it it is a combination of qualities that I admire, but also I am certain felt um, very limiting for a young woman like Victoria Nash being 1948 in a, in a rural ranching landscape um, in, in the western slope of Colorado. I, I could feel how there was so much more inside of her than she was ever invited to know. And thus, you know, the journey of the book becomes her digging that out herself. There's nobody who's going to um, help her discover that. Will comes along and, and as you say, because they're both open-hearted people, they're able to connect and she's able to discover things about herself that she never knew. But even there, um, they both are are relatively quiet people. They don't talk a lot. Even later in the book, she she regrets on some level that she didn't ask more questions. But I think she hadn't yet developed the the wherewithal to feel confident to ask questions, to feel confident in her own voice. Um, and so that quietness throughout the entire book, I love that you that you picked up on that. I even say once about Victoria's father is she wanted to say something, but Daddy didn't like you know, unnecessary words. Um, I, I've known people like this in my own family and in my own ranching community here on the Western Slope. And I think that there's a quality to that that can be kind of beautiful. And there's also a limitation to that that often creates um, uh, a lot of unsaid emotions, which we see throughout the, throughout the course of this book. So yeah, thank you for that question. I, I really like delving into that because I don't want to dismiss any of the people as being unthoughtful or unkind or unloving because they are quiet. But also access to those emotions might also be more difficult in a culture that doesn't encourage that among family members and among townsfolk. And so as we get to know uh, Victoria, we also learn about the other characters um, who are around her and who's who's presence made for in in some ways a more functional family in the you know, in the past we have victoria's mother uh her older cousin cal and when we pick up the story you know some of them have been dead for several years and that sets up our understanding about the profound loss that victoria is already living with and so how did you decide where in the timeline of Victoria's life to pick up the plot of this novel and push other details into the background? Yeah. This book began for me with the character of Victoria, with starting to imagine um, this this complicated but humble and quiet young woman who I wanted to dig into to explore sort of what it means to be a woman in the world, um, the layers and layers of both challenge and overcoming that that uh, any human being has to face, for sure. Um, but I thought some of the experiences in the book are particular to being a woman in the world. And as I started digging into that a little bit more and coming to understand Victoria more, and then I chose to, to put her in the setting of Iola. And, you know, I've known that story of the fact that there were, there's a, there's a town, there's actually three towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa Reservoir. I've known that since I was a little kid. And honestly, that's always haunted me. It's really captured my imagination. So once I knew Victoria and I set her in that setting, a little bit of the time frame was sort of determined for me in that um, 
the people of Viola started being displaced in the late 1950s, and the dam was being constructed constructed throughout the early 1960s, completed in 1965, and the floodwaters started rising at the end of 1965 and throughout 66 and 67. And so I knew Victoria, and then that helped me place her in time because I wanted her to be old enough to um, be rooted very deeply in that homeland and be conscious of her her connection and her rooting in that homeland. She also, at one point in the novel, goes off to uh, survive and exist in a very wild landscape. She's a she's a girl alone in the wilderness and has to know how to survive there. All of these required her to be of a certain age, um, but I also wanted her to have that naivete. So I oriented the timeline really around uh, the building of Blue Mesa Dam and the flooding of Blue Mesa Reservoir. And um, I did want to mention you, and you bring up some of the other characters in the book. Uh, I'm a fifth-generation Coloradan, and so I have this long, deep ancestry here in my what I consider my homeland here in the state of Colorado. I live at 9,000 feet high in the Rocky Mountains. My ancestors, my great-great-grandparents, and um, well into my grandparents' era were homesteaders and ranchers and farmers on the eastern plains of Colorado. Um, my grandfather was a wonderful storyteller. I learned a lot of the particulars about life for my ancestors. I actually knew my great-grandparents well into their um, into their mid-90s. And then I also lived here in the Gunnison Valley where the novel is set, which is also has a long history of ranching and farming. And so the type of person that you might find in Iola, Colorado, the type of person who lives on the western slope of Colorado, they're just inside me. They're in my ancestry. They're in my daily life. I kind of know and understand these people. And so with each character that I that I constructed in my book, I did it with a ton of love and respect and also a nod toward their complexity. And so, as you said, you know, there's a we in retrospect and in flashback, we meet a lot of Victoria's family who she's lost. And then we also meet a variety of other people who are in the town and also in the town of Paonia after Victoria, um, uh, when some of the novel moves to uh, the farther western slope of Colorado. And these are all interesting, interesting people to me. Uh, so it was really fun to create all the characters in this book. I mean, the old adage for writers is write what you know. And you know some very specific parts of Colorado very, very well. Yeah, you know, as you say, both through your family's legacy there or through your own time there, your work in environmental studies. But it's also true that writers need to invent beyond the world as they find it. So were there things that you that you felt you had to create space for within the history that you knew or invention that you had to do to to create room for the story that you were trying to tell? Um in this landscape you knew so well. Yes, definitely. It was such an interesting dance in a way <laughs> to create a story in this place that I do know so well and also root it in historical fact, as much historical fact as uh, I wanted to be as accurate as to the historical particulars and the historical actuality of the building of, of Blue Mesa Dam and the creation of the reservoir. But I also had a wild imagination around who these characters would be. And all of the characters are from my imagination. And so I wanted to do everyone justice. <laughs> I wanted to do the history justice. I wanted to do the landscape justice. I wanted to um, do certainly Victoria justice, as I mentioned earlier, the real drive for me to write this book and to finish it, which was difficult and, and many years in coming, very much a, a uh, labor of love, was to tell Victoria's story as accurately as possible. And so I started thinking of everything I included or didn't include in this novel of um, what best serves Victoria's story. That became the frame for me because um, all of the other elements of this of this book, I think the thematic concerns that I spoke of before, of displacement and place and home. Also, there is grief and loss and a lot of very, very human, um, you know, universally human themes here in the book, um, friendship and motherhood and 
and and Homeland, well beyond any of those thematic concerns, which were very important to me, was really just the story itself. I just wanted to tell a really great and meaningful story, one that readers would connect to in their hearts. And so um, pretty much everything then became in service to Victoria's story. Um, Describing the wild landscapes for me was probably the easiest part to do. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time in the wilderness. It's absolutely essential to me. I, uh, I uh, am a big mountain climber and backpacker and camper and hiker and I just and skier and all the things you know, all the things that one would expect one to do when who lives high in the mountains of of the color all the Colorado Rockies. I define my life by those things. And so those elements, bringing those elements and how important those elements are, I feel, into any life, the humility we gain, how instructive wild landscapes can be toward helping us understand how to live our best lives, how to dig in and find our strength and our resilience under uh, challenging or scary circumstances. All of those things I knew would be important to the storytelling um, for Victoria. And so... um, yeah, all all of these things, my deep Colorado roots, my understanding of the landscape, but more than anything, my dedication to telling Victoria's story as well as I possibly could. Um, I hope all of that comes through well for the reader in the book. Choosing to write in historical fiction it puts you in a certain frame. You know, history is um, is a tool that allows you to zero in on. Um, on certain kinds of issues, on certain kinds of topics. And so why set this book starting in the 1940s? You know, what were the, what are the things that are cast in a brighter light when you pick that particular point in time? I think there are a lot of uh, cultural assumptions that still carry on today that we might believe that we in in the 21st century are more enlightened or more aware or that we've learned from our past and learned from our history and certainly in some ways we do progress culturally and and in in a in a deep sense of wisdom of how to live with one another and how to be but um a lot of the elements of the book that are sort of undertones you know i like i said i really set out to tell a moving story I don't want the book to feel like um, any sort of a um, any sort of a commentary on one one aspect or another of history, saying what was right, what was okay. wrong. What I would like it to do is to offer up the readers the complexity of historical remembrance, as well as the complexity of of life in a certain era. And, and just to lay out those complexities and ask the reader to delve into those and ask themselves what they think about those issues that are still alive and well today. One of those would be the whole notion of progress. You know, it, Victoria, in a very subtle way, questions notions of progress. We have inherited, especially with the expansion into the American West, we've inherited the idea that progress is sort of always for the better. There's a, there's a positive quality inherent even in the word. However, you don't have to lift that veil of illusion. <laughs> um, you don't have to dig very deeply to understand that everything that we are often, we as, as citizens are sold as progress, just under the surface is offer, often a lot of human suffering, a lot of human complexity. That was certainly true um, ecologically and, the, and, and for the, the um, human cost and suffering of the, the creation of uh, Blue Mesa Reservoir. Um, that was certainly, certainly true about the way in which we represented and thought of indigenous people here in the United States in order to um, justify and create westward expansion. So there are many, many ways that the idea of progress has been sort of handed to us. And I would argue that my book asks you to um, look a little bit deeper into those notions and really ask, you know, certainly there are benefits to any any concept of progress, but also what are the detriments and which one ends up weighing the most. Um, The building of the Blue Mesa Reservoir in the mid 20th century was the result of uh, the 100 year old, um, it's called the Colorado River Compact. It's a river compact among seven states in the Colorado and the American West 
that is now 100 years old. And it's a 100-year-old law that is still governing water policy in the American West, which is a very complex issue. And there were many dams built uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s throughout the West. Iola is an is a interesting story, and I, I was very excited to delve into the particulars of Iola's story and the Blue Mesa's story. But you can find a similar story multiple different places around um, around water irrigation damming in the West uh, uh, in that same era. And I think that it's important to tell those stories. We certainly have a lot of very difficult uh, decisions to make around West, around water in the American West currently, with a, a, a profound drought that's left Lake Powell, as an example, nearly running dry. We have very difficult decisions to make about how we're going forward. And I feel the only way we can do that is to look to the past, what what worked and what didn't. And then obviously we continue eternally to struggle with questions of how to deal with one another, how to love one another and care for one another um, uh, through the lens of uh, transcending our historical notions of prejudice and racism in the United States. That is a very slow and very complicated um, journey for us all. And I didn't want to shy away from that in this book. And I didn't want to shy away from the tragedy of the legacy of racism against indigenous people uh, on the Western slope of Colorado. What are the other complicated concepts that you, that you really focus in on? Is it not just the idea of displacement, something being pushed from somewhere to somewhere else, but the idea of transplantation? of yeah. moving something and hoping that it takes root. And it seems spread through this this novel as well. Victoria's family bringing peaches from Georgia to the Western foothills uh, was just the first time someone in this book takes a risk to try to move something to unfamiliar or unknown ground. Yeah. And it, hopefully I'm not reaching here, but can you can you talk a bit about whether you see that as a as a through line for uh, go as a river? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for mentioning the peaches because the peaches end up having a playing a really significant role throughout the throughout the course of the novel. Um, I've actually been so surprised how many people don't know that we grow amazing peaches on the western slope of Colorado. I think that when people think peaches, they immediately think Georgia, which are also fabulous. But we're very well known for our peaches on the western slope of Colorado, not necessarily here in the Gunnison Valley, where uh, our elevation is a little bit too high to really support um, the type of peach groves that we have just up and over the hills in the North Fork River Valley um, that you learn quite a bit about in, in my book. And so yeah, the peaches become a powerful symbolism for Victoria's family. They're the one place that unites their rather ragged family. They're the they're the one last beautiful thing, is how Victoria phrases it. And the fact that they were sort of grown against the odds uh, in the area of Iola, I call them sort of miracle Nash peaches. They're the only they're the only peach orchard in uh, in Iola. And you asked me earlier, where did I take creative license? I'll just admit that <laughs> I did a lot of research around peaches and peach growing, and I uh, with the real experts on the on the farther western slope of Colorado. And I asked all of them. I was like, you know, in theory, <laughs> could you have had a peach orchard in Iola if it was very carefully cultivated and generally generationally cared for? And they said, yes, that it would be possible, but it's difficult enough that nobody, there's no evidence that anybody did it. And in that way, I actually loved it better because it became even more of a powerful metaphor of growing against the odds. And then as you say, as Victoria has to decide what to do, with this ancestral peach farm that is really the last thing that she connects her um, to her family and that she loves so deeply, the idea of resilience in new soil. How can any of us displaced from our homelands? And of course, immigration and displacement is, is as you know, we were talking about um, other issues that were true then and are certainly still true today. Um, a question becomes, how do we find resilience in new soil? How can we create a new sense of homeland when where we're leaving 
is not necessarily by choice. We carry the our the the landscapes that form us in our childhoods, where we come from matters so much. In fact, I think Victoria at one point says, you know, she had always been taught and she always knew that knew that nothing matters so much as where you come from. I think I believe that very deeply because I carry that ancestry and that sense of place in my own bones. And so delving into how can one be resilient to new soil, that idea of transplantation, as you mentioned, uh, becomes a really powerful idea in the novel and also um, I hope turns the reader toward hope by the end of the book because there is a lot of grief and loss and displacement. But I do think this idea of transplantation and the and the uh, the possibilities within it does eventually turn the reader toward hope. It's true. I mean, this is a book where I think as a reader you spend a lot of time feeling loss feeling Victoria's loss, feeling the loss of, of, of other characters, the, the moments where that lifts and where, you know, where hope comes through is in these multiple places and not just with peaches, to be clear, where things and people do take new root, um, all the way through the book. And I won't say any more than that because I don't want to give it away. <laughs> Let's talk for a minute about your own career as a writer. First novels are kind of miraculous things. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. They represent time pulled usually from other parts of what is a busy life to make it a whole new thing. You've taught writing and literature and environmental studies for nearly three decades. When did you decide that there was this book in you that had to get out? Oh my gosh, the journey. You know, and I hope there are other writers who are listening who take some uh, inspiration from my journey because, you know, the short answer to this is I just wouldn't give up. <laughs> A little bit of that resilience and strength that we see in um, in Victoria and being able to face challenge in your own kind of quiet and determined way. Um, I have that in myself as well. And I, um, you know, I set out to be a writer as a little kid. I have always written, I've always written, my mom has boxes of short stories and poems and things that I wrote as a child. I was drawn to it um, very uh, authentically. I went on to do a double major undergraduate degree in journalism as, as well as literary studies and creative writing. And then I went on directly to grad school to the Temple University's graduate program in creative writing. I knew I wanted to be a writer <laughs> and uh, I was 22 years old, you know, and I, uh, I was awarded a teaching fellowship while, while I was in graduate school. And I discovered at the time that I really loved teaching. I also really wanted <laughs> to get back to Colorado and he, especially here in the Gunnison Valley where I'd always had family and where I had lived, um, uh, summers throughout, uh, summer, summers throughout college and grad school. And I knew this was my place and where I wanted to to build, build a whole adult life. And I was hired by my university, Western Colorado University in 1991. And I, I just dug in there. I uh, loved it. I loved being a teacher. <laughs> I loved helping young people. I loved having that outlet to affect positive change in the world by helping young people believe in themselves and develop the skills that would help serve them as they move forward. And then not too long after that, I became a mom. And then it was very much all about my kids and being showing up to all of that every day and then um, with joy and and uh, with um, a lot of commitment uh, and so between teaching full-time and being a mom and then also what life hands you or me everybody the just daily challenges of life you know I had some severe grief and loss in my own family I had a illness I think that the journey of writing my book um, is as much a story in and of itself that I hope is inspirational to people as is Victoria's journey. Because once somewhere in there, I don't even know exactly when, <laughs> somewhere in there, I started, you know, I had kind of stopped writing, to be honest. I just didn't have space in my life. I wrote a little bit for magazines and whatnot, but I started thinking of this character, Victoria, and I started developing her story in my mind. And even though I very much did not have time to write it, 
I, uh, it kept poking at me. It just really wouldn't leave me alone. And so finally I was like, okay, okay, who are you? What, <laughs> what is this all about? Started jotting down little notes, little ideas, little by little by little, I'd throw them into a file. And I don't know, about five, six years in, I thought, my gosh, I think this is a novel. And then of course I was like, I don't know how to write a novel. I, I had studied mostly fiction, short fiction and poetry. And, and yet, um, I just could not step away from this story. And so it took me probably 12 or more years of chipping away at it little by little. But um, I grew a tremendous amount in that time. Victoria's character and the story was became deeper and richer. I figured out what I was doing narratively and as a writer. And I am so grateful for the journey. I'm so grateful for the length of the journey. I think it made me a better human and a better writer. And I think it made the, the, the book a better book. And so it came around, I think, exactly as and when it needed to. And I'm, I'm really grateful that I stuck with it. One of the things I'm interested about in that journey for you as, as a writer is you, know, you you wrote other work for literary journals. You, you know, this certainly wasn't the first time that you put pen to paper in a creative way. When you have an idea and a character you know, like Victoria, do you tuck that away because you're getting ready to tell her story and write other things in the meantime? Or does everything feel like a progression? towards that first book? Well, you know, I because it was such a disjunctive process for me, um, I, it, it often didn't feel like a progression at all. I would honestly not open the file on this for three and four months at a time, depending on what my family needed of me, what mm -hmm. was going on in my own life. And so I, um, I let it percolate. I feel like it was more of a marinating, percolating sort of the process than a moving forward Got a lot of the time. Yeah, because also um, I, I think for me at the time, at least, and maybe this is just how I write, um, it, is getting to know those characters, really getting to know them so much more than ever ends up in the book itself and just thinking about them a lot. And so, you know, I, I did I did continue to do other other types of writing here and there. Not much fiction, honestly, during that time. Uh -huh. I think that if I was gathering ideas, I was putting them in the file uh, for Victoria's story. Um, and so it's very difficult for me, uh, at least, uh, to carry uh, two stories in my head at the same time. I, uh, I don't I never remember any periods of abandoning this this book i just would like i said if i wasn't actively working on it i was always thinking about it and so uh i don't know i guess the answer to your question is that i um i fit it in <laughs> i fit it in when i could and i wasn't doing much other writing because if i could steal away a moment to write i really preferred to write on on, on this book and it's kind of a miracle to me that it ended up getting finished i will say that in 2018, I took early retirement from teaching and um, cleared the space. I already had a full draft of, of the book. I was working on revisions at that point. It was a belated uh, clearing of space, <laughs> I think, for the book. I actually would have been really well served by doing it sooner, but I was scared to do so financially. I had one kid on the way to college and another one coming up behind her. I had um, just the very real lot, the very, very real um, circumstances of I think anybody's life of it sounds really romantic and lovely to ditch your day job and focus on being a writer but um, sometimes that's just you know literally not possible for a person or for a family right. and so uh, it took me until 2018 and even doing then it was very scary my husband who's a flight paramedic and a search and rescue guy he picked up extra shifts bless him I picked up extra odd jobs it was a scary leap to make and it was all oriented around i really just need to clear the space to make this book as good as i possibly can can make it and i'm so grateful i had the support to do so but i don't want to make it seem to any writer or to anybody that it's um an easy thing to do it it, it was terrifying really <laughs> um and yet i'm glad i did it so 
tell me a bit about your reading life. You know, who are the books and authors that that you've surrounded yourself with as either as you've been getting ready to tell the story or um or just who you, you buttress yourself with as you're uh, as you're pushing forward with uh, with getting this book ready. Oh my gosh. Well, I am a huge reader and I have been my entire life. Um, as I mentioned, my undergraduate part of my graduate and my PhD degrees are all um, focused on literary studies. And so I feel like I had been preparing in some way to write this book, not just studying writing, but studying narrative as a reader. And so I feel mm-hmm. like I have this big, beautiful, amazing backpack of brilliant writers that I carry with me everywhere. It's like a toolbox for me. Um, and my interest in literary studies was super broad. And so, you know, I, I have a, a wide variety of of, uh, of writers that I love so much, I feel like they're family. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I in terms of, of what might have most heavily influenced myself as a writer, um, I really, really love the quiet presence and of Marilyn Robinson's writing. I've, I've always really loved her novels. Um, I learned a lot about storytelling from Louise Erdrich and Toni Morrison and Grace Cayley. Um, of course, the classics as well. You know, I studied Letta Hemingway and Steinbeck and Kate Chopin and some of those, um, some of those just classic storytellers. I studied them, but but the but the ones that I would pick up myself, you know. Um, some of those more contemporary writers, Erdrich and Morrison, and certainly Marilyn Robinson, mean the world to me. I love, love, love Virginia Woolf for all the heart and soul and attention to specific moments. Well, and I should mention too that I, I taught a lot of environmental history, philosophy, and literature, and so a lot of environmental writers have meant a lot to me. Um, Terry Tempest Williams and the poetry of Mary Oliver, I mentioned those a lot. But there's a lot of them. You know, I have a quote by Annie Dillard at the beginning of my book. I, I love Rachel Carson and Wendell Berry and Wallace Stegner and Barry Lopez, some of the classic, um, uh, some of the first, what we would consider environmental literature. I loved teaching those and bringing those to my students. Um, and you ask what I, when I'm writing, I don't read fiction. I don't, I can't. I mentioned I can't write two stories at one time. I also can't read somebody else's story and write my own. And so when I hit writer's block, I always turn to poetry. I am a huge fan of poetry. And um, I read a lot of poetry while I'm writing fiction. It helps me attend really carefully to the rhythm of language and to really precise word choices. And uh, and so, you know, Lucille Clifton and Mary Oliver, I mentioned, Yates and Rilke and... Um, Rita Dove, and oh my gosh, I love Eastern European writers. Uh, I have a, a huge poetry section in my own personal library that I'll just grab uh, anytime I need a little bit of inspiration that that the written word matters and that in a very concise use of words, you can actually explore and try to capture a lot of human heart and a lot of human experience. So sorry for the long answer, but honestly, I love the writers I love, I love them so much that um, <laughs> I don't want to leave anybody out. And yet I've left out so many people. <laughs> I was just going to say my writing students, you know, I tell them, write. If you want to write, write. Please write. Consider yourself a writer and make space for that in your life. But also read. Read, read, read. Reading gives you a, a deep cellular sense of narrative and language. And I think it's so important to any writer. You touched on it a little bit as as you were talking about some of the environmental writers that um, that are meaningful to you. Those writers that have captured the American West and that have created prose that that captures that landscape and those people. And I'm wondering if there's anyone that that either stands out for you or that that you were thinking of as you were as you were looking at writing a book in that place with those characters well you know as i said i really feel like that all of the writers that i that i love i kind of absorb them you know like i absorb them in a, in a way where i feel them living inside of me and so when i turn to write they're all with me but i'm not 
it actually does me a disservice to think about anyone in particular because I feel like in order to tap into my most authentic voice, and especially writing about the Gunnison Valley, I know from great environmental writers that the more that one can evoke the particulars of a place, I always think that sort of biologists and poets and environmental writers have a lot in common in that we're looking at the minutiae, you know, studying the minutiae, studying how landscapes, the, the particulars of landscapes interact with one another. I think that careful attention, I think I have it naturally. I had it as a kid. I wrote about it a lot as a child and I just remember feeling it. And I would always mention something about a landscape or or something that I saw that my family would be like, wow, we didn't notice that. So for my mom would sometimes because she's an artist. <laughs> but I I have a, a keen sense of detail when I'm immersed in a natural landscape. And so I've learned from the writers that I carry how important it is to evoke that. But when it's time for me to actually evoke it as a writer, I try to just go it alone <laughs> because I want it to be as perfectly authentic to my own observations and my own voice as possible. And uh, so it's an interesting combination of all of those things that lead me toward um, how I describe something or what is included or left out of a narrative that I'm completing. And a lot of this I'm really just discovering about myself. Um, I wrote a lot as a young woman, as I mentioned, and I for both my honors thesis and my master's thesis, I had to do a reflection on my own personal creative process. So fascinating to me to look back at that of what I wrote about myself when I was, you know, in my 20s. Um, because I see so much of that young writer still in me, and yet so much of it has gone so much deeper. To not want to play so much with structural experimentation as a statement against, you know, okay. rebelling against, you know, dominant reality structures. I, I played with a lot of that when I was younger because I admired that aesthetic. I thought it was cool. But now I know that for me, good writing is all about the heart and how to tell the most authentic story that I possibly can tell from the most authentic place I can tell it. And um, and I've been really pondering that and how I've changed as a writer in that way. Uh, the wisdom of age, I think, on some level. Um, I think to be as honest as possible is the key. And so with a book so many years in in the marinating now out in the world, how do you start to think about what comes next? Oh, oh my goodness. I tell you, it's not easy. I'm so immersed um, in Victoria and in her world and in her story. And I'm also currently, because the book has only been out um, for a few weeks, I, um, or not very long, I I just recently finished a book tour where I was on the road for three weeks, primarily a regional tour, where I really got to talk to people who actually live in the landscapes that are, a lot of the landscapes that are in the book. I'm so immersed in those conversations right now that yes, I do have another novel in the wings. I have already begun writing it and I'm so excited to, to just dig into it However, um, I'm back to feeling a little bit like I used to feel about there's only so much time in the day and I don't <laughs> have currently a whole lot of time to devote to it. But what I am going into with this next novel is a heck of a lot more confidence in myself as a novelist than I had um, the first time around. I also am aware of a path to publication, which um, you know my wonderful uh, uh, publishers here in the United States, Spiegel and Growl, and then I have so much support by Penguin Remnant House there in Canada. Um, Spiegel and Growl has already signed my second novel. They're being incredibly encouraging and very supportive. And so I know that that book will will get into the world, whereas with my first novel, I had absolutely no idea. In fact, I wasn't even writing with any of that in mind. I just, as I mentioned, wanted to tell her story. And I have, um, in theory, and soon, I think, actual space cleared to sit down and call myself a writer and be a writer and that that is my focus now as opposed to trying to just fit it in and so the entire experience of writing this next novel is going to be different for me and I'm both excited about that and and infinitely curious how that is going to play out <laughs> but 
I do have one in the works and I'm and I and I know where I'm going with it. And I'm just at this point, I just need to get to know these characters a little bit better. And then I'm on my way, I think. <laughs> and so with without telling us too much at all, the the one question I will ask is do we get to come back to the Gunnison Valley? No, not in this not in uh, this next one. I will say, okay. however, that it is it is my next novel is set in Colorado, but it's a, set in a very different area of Colorado, more the southeast corner, which is where my ancestors settled and homesteaded and ranched. And I also have still plenty of family in that area. Um, and uh, it will deal with a also a mountain landscape, but a different kind of mountain landscape in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, drier than here, not a landscape that I am as deeply familiar. I've climbed a lot of mountains in that range, and I love it, and I know it, but I'm getting to know it more deeply. It, it'll be a little bit more challenging in that way, um, but I'm, uh, I'm really excited about the story that I want to tell. Yeah. I love that geography comes first. You know, that's so unconscious on my on my part, but you know what? For me, geography always comes first. I bet if you ask me anything about my day, anything about anything I'm thinking about, <laughs> I would I would venture in a very unconscious way that geography is place is always gonna come first for me. And um thanks for noticing that. That's really, really interesting. Um, yep, place place comes first. And as a writer, I think character for me will always come second. And those two things um, are what I what I really, really value in telling a good story. Shelley, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Michael, it's been such a joy. Thank you for your wonderful question. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I have been speaking with Shelley Reed, author of the novel Go as a River. Find it and all the other books we talked about, and we talked about a lot of them, at kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes for a link. And if you've listened this far, do us a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend about Shelley's book and this interview. The only thing we as booksellers love more than books is people telling each other about books. So do us that favor. Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.